All right, good to see all of you. We're in chapter six in our study of the book of Romans. I make a couple of introductory comments here that are really important. Those of you who weren't here last week, um, I'm giving you a co hard copy of the handouts, which I think are also um, uploaded by, by Glenn. But anyway, that's more of what we did last week. But since I made a lot of hard copies and I don't want to just wantonly throw the fruits of trees away because I'm a good environmentalist, I thought you, you can throw them away. <laughs> Because you're accountable for that too. But anyway, chapter six, Paul begins to make an important transition. And um, it honestly, man, is really important you understand this transition. I'm going to use some language he uses in uh, his particular letter to the Romans, but it's also in the book of Galatians. Paul is somewhat unique in really developing these two themes, and you are familiar with them justification and sanctification. Remind you that justification is an event in our lives. It's when we put our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous. It's a forensic term, a legal term. We're declared righteous by God. That's how God looks at us. The righteousness that we have is in alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to our account, to use the language of the definition, because we put our faith in Christ. Sanctification is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. God the Father transforms us through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us because of our faith in Christ. The Trinity is involved in both. He is beginning in chapter 6 that transition from a very full-blown discussion of justification which started in 321 and goes through the end of chapter 5. Now he's beginning to lay the foundation for his very important Emphasis on sanctification, which we'll conclude at the end of chapter 8. But to do that, to do that, explain that transition, to lay that foundation, he wants us to understand what I like to call positional truth. How does God look at us? And chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, declares that. And the foundational principle of how God looks at us, the foundational proposition of how God looks at us, the foundational truth of how God looks at this, us is that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now, again, that, that's the language of this transition. Our position is, in God's eyes, we are dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. And actually, he will add, we are in, in terms of God, we're enthroned with Christ. So, I mean, it's, it's a marvelous way in which we are to understand our position. Let's use another way of talking about it. These verses, 6, 1 through 14, describe our new identity in Christ. In my judgment, in postmodern America in 2022, when there's such utter chaos and confusion in our culture, people need to understand this proposition. Who am I? That's an interesting question to ask people today. Who am I? Because much of our culture answers the question in terms of human sexuality. The primary identity of who I am is my sexual identity. In Chris, almost unimaginable to me, but it is true, increasingly you ask, who am I? Well, it kind of depends right now. Because gender is also a fluid concept. So is identity tied to gender? Is identity tied to sexuality? 
or is identity tied to my race or is identity tied to my socioeconomic position or is identity, I mean, fill in the blank. Chapter 6, 1 through 14 establishes if you've come to Christ in faith, your identity is defined by your relationship with Christ. In God's eyes, you're dead, buried, and exalted, ascended with Christ. And so this is what Paul is doing. But notice how he introduces it in verse 1. What shall we say then? And he's asking this question. It's a natural question. It's a legitimate question based on what he just said at the end of chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now Paul wants to pose this question. If grace abounds where sin abounds, here's his question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a reasonable question to ask. If he had established that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more, where sin reigned, it leads to death, grace reigns, which leads to faith, which leads to eternal life. So this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, is a sanctification question. This question deals with, okay, we've put our faith in Christ. I have experienced the salvation that he offers. I've been declared righteous. Now, Paul has just said, where sin abounds, grace abounds, therefore it seems reasonable, I should sin all the more. So that God's grace should be even more extended to me. Now, the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language is meganoita. That's what Paul says. By no means. I read from the ESV translation. The ESV translates that by no means. <laughs> no with 17 exclamation points behind it. The strongest way you can say no. They are not connected. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's the proposition. It's in the form of a rhetorical question. But that little phrase. How can we who died to sin? Now, in what sense have we died to sin? Well, he's going to explain that in the next several verses. Because as he will also establish, you and I, we come to faith in Christ. We are now declared righteous. We still have the capacity to sin. So even though we still have the capacity to sin, Paul has the audacity to say, we who have died to sin. That seems like an oxymoron. That seems like a contradiction. We still have the capacity to sin, and we do sin, but yet we have died to sin. Here again is the phrase I like to use. This is positional truth. This is how God looks at us. Now, he has to explain this. He has to explain it. And in verses 3 through 5, he explains it to us. The rhetorical question is, how can we who died to sin still live? And then how does he has to explain that? In verses 3 through 5, he explains our new identity in Christ. This is the positional truth. No, no matter what we do, no matter 
what we think, no matter how we feel emotionally, and when we're having really bad days and so on, it does not change the facts of verses 3 through 5. These are facts. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Three through five, he answers the question. He, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And verses three through five, I keep saying the same thing, is our new identity, the positional truth, how we feel, no matter what the circumstances are, that no matter what we do, does not change these facts. Now, there are a couple of key phrases. The key phrase to really understand his argument is the phrase, baptized into Christ Jesus. And he uses it again in verse 4, baptized or baptism into death. Now, sometimes, particularly Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, want to see the ordinance of baptism here. That's not necessarily what he's saying. He's not referring to the ordinance of baptism. Although that, you know what I mean by ordinance, if I use that word, okay. If he, that may be a part of it, and I'll explain that in a minute, but that's not the main point. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. The Greek word for baptism or baptize as a verb is baptizo. I know you're really glad I told you that. But the reason I'm telling you that is because what we do there is we transliterate it. We take the Greek word and just bring it over into English letter for letter. Now, there's a problem when we do something like that because we don't know what it really meant in the Greek. So we just bring it into English. And so what does it really mean? Well, the word baptizo, using the Greek word, was a term of the textile industry in the ancient world. I mean, it's all over the languages of the ancient world. But the, the, the textile industry would take a piece of white cloth. Like, I have a white shirt on today. If I would take this white shirt and dip it into a vat, vat of purple dye, I've baptized it, and it comes out of that vat, what color? Purple. It's now identified with that dye. It had been white, now it's purple. So it's now identified with that dye. It changes everything. So Paul is using it in that sense. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, who reasons why he's doing this are important, but he's reviewing the history of Israel, and he says, you Jews were baptized with Moses at the Red Sea. And he's thinking, what? Moses performed a baptismal service in the Red Sea? Is that what he's talking about? He dunked a bunch of people in the Red Sea? No, no, no. It's again that the meaning of the word baptizo, you Jews identified with Moses in the Red Sea. You followed him. You identified with him. He was charged by God to be your deliverer, charged by God to lead you to the promised land. You identified with him and followed him the same way he's using it here. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, in a sense, the ordinance of baptism, and I don't know if all of you have been baptized or not, but the ordinance of baptism means you are publicly identifying with Christ. That's what that means. 
You are publicly saying, I put my faith in Christ, I belong to him. And it's a public declaration. And that was what's so phenomenal, if you think, for example, in Acts chapter 2, where you see Pentecost on May the 24th, A.D. 33. 3,000 Jews accepted Christ that day, and it tells us they were baptized. That meant 3,000 Jews in the various cleansing pools all around Temple Mount. If you ever go there, you just see there are dozens of them. I've seen them many times. It's hard because they keep uncovering more and more of them in the archaeological dig. It's where people be kind of before they go up to the temple. There's where they baptized all these people. And so 3,000 Jews on May the 24th, AD 33, publicly identified with Jesus and Messiah. And you'll imagine that public event, what that would have looked like. That's how the ordinance of baptism is to be understood. You are publicly identifying with Christ. So the act of the ordinance of baptism represents, in a sense, what Paul's arguing here. So he says, we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. We identify with his death. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him. We identify with his burial. And then the rest of it, in order that just as Christ was raised, the dead, the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Or if we've been united with him in death like his, we certainly will be united with him in a resurrection. So what is the argument? Three things. We are identified with Christ. The positional truth is, I'm dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. When Jesus died, the buried and resurrected. I'm now identified with that action of Jesus. That's my new identity. Now, he's going to use a little phrase coming up, once for all. You don't have to keep doing that. You don't have to keep walking the sawdust trail and putting your faith in Christ. When I was still in Pennsylvania, shortly after I was ordained, a guy came up to me and said, last night I trusted Jesus for the 37th time. And I looked at him and I said, oh, that's very interesting. And so... I did know from what other guys on the staff told me, he was really a rascal, really something else. And so what he would do is he'd sin wantonly and then go and to a revival meeting and get saved again. That is, a, that, is, that is dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. That is a horrific view of salvation. And I just said to him, um, you are contradicting everything the New Testament says about salvation. Well, we had a long discussion. That's not what you see here. This is a once-for-all act. You put your faith in Christ. That's your new identity. When did those 3,000 get baptized after? Same day. Same day as? The, they say, the understanding of the text is that it's May 24th, AD 33, they were baptized. Yep. And that event was what? I'm sorry? What was that event? Pentecost. That's Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, you know, and all the other things happen on that remarkable day. All right, now, do you, are you with me? Are you with Paul here? If someone comes up to you and say, says, who am I? Well, I identify with Jesus Christ. He's death, burial, and resurrection. That's who I am. That's my new identity. I'm a new person in Christ. That's my new position. Now, that sounds a little weird and funny. I'm not sure you would answer it that way. But the question of who am I, which is a major question today in psychologist language, which may or may not be helpful, but they have written, there's an identity crisis in America. People do not know how to understand themselves. 
Is the primary identification the marker of my life, my sexuality? Is it my gender? Is it my race? Is it my socioeconomic status, my portfolio? I mean, there are various ways people answer that question. <laughs> However you answer that question, if you don't answer the way Paul answers it in verses 3 through 5, you're answering it wrong. So this is, this is profound truth. And then this also, in, at least in my judgment, it helps us to understand the security of the believer. This doesn't change. This is who you are in God's eyes. This doesn't change. You're now in his family. You're part of, you're part of his children, so to speak. And a father always disciplines his children, which is another aspect of this. But this is our identity. This is how Paul answers the question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Because of this proposition, you have died to sin. What do you mean by that, Paul? I'm dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. That's how he answers the question. Got it? I have a question. You're the first day in my class. You're asking a question. What boldness and audacity. That's great. I'm glad also, you do. Yeah. <laughs> so you said we just need to identify with Christ. That's the point of being baptized. The ordinance of baptism. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So That's how you should. Pardon me? Is water then not required? Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm talking, what is that ordinance all yeah. about? Yeah. You're publicly identifying with Christ. Right, that's why I'm asking, is water required? Because uh-huh. to publicly identify with Christ, you don't have to be bad. You don't have to have water. No, but that's what the act of baptism. You are publicly, I, I put my, that's why you see in the New Testament so frequently, especially in the book of Acts, where someone puts their faith in Christ, they're almost immediately baptized. Almost immediately. Yeah. That doesn't mean baptism is required for salvation. It's just, just naturally follows. And the act of baptism Involving water connects with Ezekiel chapter 33 and then through 36, where the ceremonial cleansing, which was part of the Old Testament law as you went up to the temple to sacrifice and so on, is replaced by the water from the Spirit, which cleanses us from sin. And then we represent that in our act of baptism. When we, now in the history of the church, people have sprinkled they poured, and they've dunked or immersed. I am not going to die on any one of those hills. I prefer immersion, but I don't think the other two are. The Bible is silent. The Bible does not command a mode. But Southern Baptists, it's biblical to immerse. Methodists say not necessarily, and we won't go any further than that. My important do you understand how he answers the question of verse 2, in three through five. That will be on the quiz next week. <laughs> Number the second, excuse me, the third point of the chapter, verses six through ten. Six through ten. This is equally as important because what the Apostle Paul does, he introduces, he's going to develop this in the rest of the chapter. He introduces the idea, indeed, the, the strong proposition that we were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to sin. Putting our faith in Christ, being justified, 
And now with the position of being dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ, now we're not no longer enslaved to sin. We are liberated from sin. We're freed from sin. We're freed from the reign of sin in our lives. Now, I've done this before. I just uh, we, We've talked about this before. I'm going to refresh your memory. For some of you, it may refresh my memory. I've never heard this before. If you've been in the class, you've heard this before. <clears throat> Justification. We are saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification. We are saved from the power of sin. Glorification, when we get our new resurrected bodies, we're saved from the presence of sin. That's how you understand the Greek word sozo in the New Testament. Because all three of those, justification, sanctification, glorification, are developed in the New Testament. So what Paul, again, as I've mentioned at the beginning of our time this morning, Chapter 6 begins the transition from justification to sanctification. And as a part of that transition, Paul wants to make sure we understand not only our new position, we're dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ, but the outworkings of that are immensely practical. I'm going to put it this way. I no longer have to sin. Before I put my faith in Christ, I could not not sin. Now that I've been justified, I do not have to sin. I have the power not to sin. That doesn't mean I'm sinless, but I now have a new power, a new capacity. So look at how he talks about this. Beginning now in verse 6, we know that our old self, our old man, almost every expositor understands that to be our old Adam, where we used to be in Adam, now we're in Christ. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of my new identity, I've been crucified with Christ. The enslavement to sin has been broken. That's why the New Testament, he doesn't use it here. He uses it in other, coming up in the book, and then it's in Galatians and in a lot of other letters. But he uses the word redeemed, or the noun redemption, which means we've been bought out of the power and marketplace of sin. We've been purchased. And the, 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 the price for that was the shed blood of Jesus. But he's saying, notice that again. He already established we're crucified with Christ. The practical outworking of that is I'm no longer enslaved to sin, which is actually quite profound because a lot of people don't necessarily think about their life before they came to Christ that they were enslaved to sin. But you talk to Woody, he will tell you before he put his faith in Christ, he was enslaved to alcohol. I have a very good. I was friend. a sinner. I was a sinner in many ways. Okay, <laughs> but that Christ broke that. You are now redeemed, bought with Christ. I have a very good friend who, earlier in his life, was really addicted to drugs. Jesus broke that enslavement 
that he had. I have had over the years many, many, really young guys particularly, who were addicted to pornography. And they simply could not get free of it. But after they came to know Christ, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but over time, that power was broken in their lives. And this is what Paul is talking about. Before you put your faith in Christ, you were, in, you were a slave to sin. That power of enslavement is broken by justification. But you have to live that now. That's what we're going to start to talk about in this next two chapters, chapter 7, chapter 8. As I've said now this third time, this is beginning that transition from justification to sanctification. And to make that transition, it is imperative that we understand our new identity. So the second aspect he wants to develop is this, we are liberated from the power of sin. Remember John chapter 8, Jesus having a long discussion with the Pharisees. He says to them, if the Son, S-O-N, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That fits right here. Jesus brings freedom from the bondage to sin. Tell Jim and the bondage of sin you can think of chains that you're in prisoners that Working along the roads, southern states to the chains. Slaves, chains. So, you know, it just to me it makes a lot of sense to draw that those pictures of how we were before we came. That's right. I mean, in the ancient world, when Paul is writing this, where approximately sixty percent of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. That would have been, a, oh, yeah, I, I can make that metaphor really come alive. I understand that. Because everywhere around me, I see slaves. It's a little more difficult in our era because there is not institutionalized slavery in our country anymore, thank the Lord. But at the same time, it doesn't take a lot of imagination. Yeah, I was enslaved to whatever that was or whatever the situation was before came to Christ. And the powerful liberating force of the gospel is what he's driving at. Let's put it positively. Before you put your faith in Christ, you were enslaved to sin. Your master was sin. You come to faith in Christ, you have a new master. It's Jesus. He's your new master. That's what he's that's where he's headed, by the way. Go. I understand this, understand this for a long time. Do not know that I actually feel that way all the time. Mm. There are some things I still might like to do that I don't do. Things people don't like to talk about. And I can go right out of here and drive home and have some truck driver come down here and run me up and swear at you. Yeah. I wish he had run off the road and killed yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, guys don't like to admit. And I understand this, but I do not feel it all the time. I don't necessarily act on it because I haven't actually shot him yet. <laughs> uh, please don't do that. <laughs> no. But no, that's right. I'm glad you said that, though, because uh, making a very, uh, very transparent comment, because all of us, whatever was a part of our past before we put faith in Christ, it's going to keep raising its ugly head throughout our life, even in the process of sanctification. That's why chapter 7 is going to be so important, the latter part of chapter 7. And Paul, very autobiographically, and this is Paul writing, I do what I don't want to do. I can't do what I want to do. 
Woe is me. I mean, that's Paul writing. That's not Bill or Jim. We Everybody would understand it. Bill, oh, yeah. I know what those guys are really like in their past life. I don't, Bill, I don't mean to confuse <laughs> you. I don't know what your life was like, but I know what my life was like. Talk to Peggy. She'll explain it to you. But with, with Paul, you mean Paul struggled with that? Yes. That's a very famous quote. It is. Will being strong. Question. You mentioned earlier three like parallels or aspects of sin that you're free from for like justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're the three aspects of salvation. And, and what were what were the the three that went? Can you really explain that? You're free from the penalty, and what were the others? Yeah, justification. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification. We're saved from the power of sin. Glorification. When we get our new resurrected bodies, we're saved from the presence of sin. We will not be a evil. Will not be a part of our new life. And, and my understanding is because God cannot tell us with okay. Him. So if we're in heaven with Him, yes, we have to be completely safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. All right. Now he's just starting this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's the other side. That is. As a Christian, I would like to begin to feel more pain. I'm with you. Totally. (laughs) We really are. But it I think this is something that has been really helpful for me and my mentor back in Pennsylvania when I trusted Christ in 72 helped me help me to really think this way. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, based on what Paul's writing around, is not dependent on our feelings. And Mel, my mentor, shared this with me. It was a little image that Bill Bright, and many of you don't know who he is. He's with the Lord for a long time now. But Bill Bright used to make a diagram on the board of a train. And the, the engine of the train is faith. The caboose of the train is emotions. Often we flip the two, and the emotions that we experience are driving the train of our life. And that's, I know exactly, I'm I'm with you totally, because, I mean, it, this happens to me a a number of times at the fitness center. I do all the fitness center every morning at 5 a.m. And if you know anything about the fitness center, you know, there's lots of equipment and so on. And you have a routine, and you do this equipment, and then you go this equipment. Carnal wretches take the machine that I want. (laughs) And I don't feel very godly about that. Now, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. So you just switch your routine. But there are times, pangs, why are you on my machine? Now, again, I'm exaggerating, but those emotions are there. And Bill explained, you're driving your car and some carnal wretch cuts you off or whatever he does to you. And those, those emotions come to the surface. And you and I have to, immediately we have to check that. Sometimes we don't check it. And they get the best of us. And we say something, or even we do something, that we regret. That's when we take First John 1, 9. We confess our sins, we say, well, just forgive us, cleanse from unrighteousness. That's the relational forgiveness of our walk with the Lord. But... I've always, when Mel shared that with me, that was absolutely central for me because I had a lot I had to get rid of in my past life. Jim 
Emotions are not the engine of your life. Faith is. Who you are. Emotions are the caboose, which Union Pacific trains are way, way <laughs> back there. <laughs> okay, that, Bill, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a very practical question. Comment, really. Am I going? Yeah. Now verse 7. He wants to explain this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Died to what? Go back to verse 2. Dead to sin. If you're dead to sin, then you're set free from sin. And that, that's powerful. I do not need to sin. Before I put my faith in Christ, I could not not sin. Now, I do not need to sin. The power has been broken. But I've got to live that. He goes on. Verse verse 8. Now, if we have died to Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Look up at verse 4, the end of verse 4, the newness of life. I'm a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I have a new master. I have a new Lord. I have a new power. The life I'm living is the life of Christ, the resurrected life of Christ. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. What? Never die again. Oh, look at this. Death no longer has dominion over him. What is death? It's the penalty of sin. Jesus died. He died at 3 p.m. on April the 3rd, AD 33. From 12 to Noon till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was darkness on the earth. Say that again. Why? April. Uh, all right, I don't remember what I said. But the date on April the 3rd, AD 33, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus died. Why did he die? He paid the penalty for sin. But why does death no, why does death no longer have dominion over Jesus? Because he was resurrected. Now that's really important. That's just really important. If death has no dominion any longer over Jesus, does death have dominion over you? No. You and I will die physically, or, you know, unless Jesus comes back while we're still living, but most of us probably will die. Our body will go into the grave and our soul will go up to the ashes of the body to be present with the floor of Second but to have that experience of the separation of the body and soul, where's our soul? It's with Jesus. That's not something to dread. That's not something to fear. That is a portal we go through to begin that new life in Christ. So that dominion has been, because of what happened to Jesus, that dominion of death has been broken for me and you as well. And what you and I have to do, we have to live that way. We have to live that. And that's the trial challenge. Now it goes on. He goes on. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin. Key phrase, once for all. 
That's a major phrase in the book of Hebrews. It's all over the book of Hebrews. Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice was once for all. And for a Jew, that meant a lot because, you know, they went up to Jerusalem and offered sacrifices continuously, no longer. Peggy always says, I'm so glad we were born after the cross. So we don't have to go to Jerusalem and all that, just things that if you were walking with the Lord, you needed to, because that's how your sin was atoned for, covered. But Jesus, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Again, I look at verse 10. I already read verse 10. Died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That is the life that you and I. Now, I'm going to write something on board here that only those of you who are real familiar with English grammar are still going to write on the board. In any language, when you speak of a verb, you speak of the verb tense, past, present, future. You speak of what voice it's in, whether it's passive, something's acting on the subject, or active, the subject acting. And then thirdly, this is where most people are not familiar with it, we speak of a verb in terms of its mood. Who made up that word, I don't know. But what mood means is, it's either in the indicative mood, it's stating a fact, or it's in the imperative mood, it's giving a command. What verses 6 through 10 have done is they've explained the facts of who we are. It's in the indicative mood. Now, in verses 11 through 14, Paul issues a set of imperatives, commands, because this is true. This should be true. Because of who I am, here's how I should live. Because this defines my new identity, this defines my new behavior. This is who I am, this is how I live. Because this is true, this becomes true. This is who I am, this defines how I live my life. The indicative produces the imperative. That was a refresher course in English grammar. You remember that from high school? <laughs> Subjunctive. The subjunctive mood where you're you're postulating something if and you usually use the word if this were true, this is what would happen. So into the Yeah. And the Bible does use subjunctive mood. But can I get away from English grammar here? Sorry. <laughs> now verse eleven through fourteen. Now remember, we've now this is the transition from justification to sanctification. We're now transitioning from this is who I am to this is what I do. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves, there's consider, little Logizathias, he's used that all over the place in Romans 5. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's a command. That's in the imperative mood. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In God's eyes, your position is undead to sin. Now, live it. Live that way. Following? Live that way. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves, members, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness. My body used to be an instrument of sin and unrighteousness. Now my body is a sin of righteousness. And I, you know, I don't, what I mean is the, my entire being, what I say, how I live, decisions I make, etc. That's what Paul's saying. If you really understand verses 6 through 10, verses 11 through 14 should naturally follow. Now that's sanctification. Because the moment you put your faith in Christ and you're justified, the next day you're not perfect. You still have all the old habits and all the old, all the old, uh, Patterns of living, that you've got to break those. And so much of the sanctification material in the New Testament, a lot of it's in Paul, is this is how you go about doing that. But it starts with understanding who you are. And if you really understand who you are, I am dead to sin. Therefore, you will stop sinning. Do we have to be patient with ourselves, too, and not... Or we lost it simply because, like, Bill's talking about this, and all of us relate to that situation. Or that guy who 37 times got saved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we all have those pockets in our lives, but we know in our, in our hearts, in our minds, and our faith that we are becoming transformed more like Christ every day. And so, we need to encourage ourselves when the devil gives us that kind of attack to say, I'm not going to do that. I won't do that because of the strength of Christ within me. So help me, Lord, because I can't do this without you. I believe, uh, now this is, we'll get into some of this later on. Goodness, almost 25 up. We'll get into this some later on in the book of, of Romans. I believe we need to have a strategy for holiness in our lives. And that strategy begins with, I'm always reminding myself of who I am in Christ. But then, because of who I am in Christ, and I am dead to sin, I'm no longer slave to sin. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. What do I do? I begin to make the decision to put off the old patterns and habits, renew my mind through God's word, put on the new habits of practice. That's not passive. That's not a passive role in sanctification. But that, what Paul is, in his command, the imperative mood here in these verses, this isn't in a passive set of suggestions. This is an active set of commandments. <laughs> Make your members instruments of righteousness, not instruments of unrighteousness. Now, that, that's broad, because you just put anything into that you want to. Our thought life, our actions. Our motives, our attitudes, all of that is a part of our old life. All can be instruments of unrighteousness. 
no longer. Why? Because of who you are. I'm dead to sin. Indicative. Now, because I'm alive to Christ, now my life's going to be different. I, my life, my body, everybody will say in chapter 12, present your bodies a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. This is what he's going to say. That's a tremendous command in chapter 12. He's, he's hinting at that now. Why? Verse 14. Oh, my goodness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but under grace. There are two eras of redemptive history. 1446 B.C. to A.D. 33. That's the realm of the law. Now, it's April 3rd, A.D. 33, Jesus dies on the cross. Now we're in the era of the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit involves us, the Holy Spirit empowers us. Now, we are not under the dominion of law, we're under the dominion of grace. Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Old Covenant, New Covenant. We're in this dominion. Again, that's our position. That's who we are. So sin has no dominion over us. Unless I remember, I'm getting beyond this, but I want you to be, this is in the New Testament. We have three enemies. Three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that system, not the trees out there in the grass, but the world is that system, the kingdom of darkness over which Satan rules, who's also our enemy, and then our flesh. Paul's the one who uses that word. He's going to be using it as we get into chapter 7. But the flesh is that power in our lives, that power in our lives to sin. It's our enemy. And the Holy Spirit replaces the power of the flesh. That's what Galatians uh, chapter 5 is all about. The struggle between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And which one wins? The one you feed the most. So I'm saying all that because when he says sin no longer has dominion over you, you no longer have to submit to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You don't have to submit to them anymore. So what does that mean? It means I'm now under the dominion of Christ. I serve a new master, which is, that's what he's going to develop in 15 through 23. He's going to take the metaphor of slavery and say, now you are a bondservant to Jesus. Jesus is your new master. And that means now, because of the indicative, the imperative now becomes much clearer because I have a new boss. That's Jesus. And that becomes a stewardship. Because I want to please my boss. I want to hear my boss say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And that the kingdom is prepared for the foundation of the world. All right, now, um, 6, 1 through 14 is probably, in terms of sanctification, in terms of the doctrine of sanctification, in terms of understanding sanctification, it's probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament. Because I come to faith in Christ now, because grace is abounded, can I sin more now? No. <laughs> no. Why? Because you died to sin. Paul, what do you mean by that? From God's eyes, you are dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. 
That's your new identity. That is who you are. And in addition, because you're dead, buried, and resurrected Christ, the power of sin has been broken in your life. You're no longer enslaved to sin. Why? Because I've been liberated from the power of sin. It no longer has dominion over me. As death has no dominion over Jesus, death has no dominion over me. As sin has no dominion over Jesus, sin has no dominion over me. Why? Because of my new identity. So the indicative of who I am results in the imperative. This is now how I live. I now live with the commitment that I am an instrument of righteousness. That's pretty powerful stuff. I say, I, I, with people who are struggling with sin, I always say, read chapter 6, 1 through 14. That's how God looks at you. Now, get active in developing a strategy for holiness for your life. You no longer have to sin. And that, I'll tell you, for some guy, I, I usually work with men and I don't work with women, but for a lot of guys, that's really hard to break those habits and patterns. It's very, very hard. And it's often not days, it's several years till they break those habits. But by the grace of God and through the power of God's Holy Spirit, they're able to do it. We can encourage people who are experiencing that too. To say, brothers, it's not done overnight. It's going to be a process. So keep calling on him. Keep reading his word. Don't give up. Don't give up. But it, I mean, and, I, and then the second thing I should do is I refer them to that passage in Romans 7. Here's Paul speaking. If Paul struggled with the same thing you're struggling with, there's hope. Because his, it's in chapter 8 is in his notorious chapter on sanctification. It's a marvelous chapter. So we'll get there in, oh, about right before Christmas at the rate we're going. But, but you talk about these strategies, though, are like you grew up, like, you don't go out to dinner late because you don't like to wait. So if you want to avoid pornography and you did it at the local yeah. coffee shop, you don't go there. That's right. So strategies is more than just, oh, try again. It's actually real. There's some positive steps you can take. Absolutely. What sin begins where the thought leads to a desire and produces an action. Our thought life is where much of the battle is. So you got to change what you're putting into your mind. And like you just said, you know, that what are things that cause, what are things that your life, you know, they may not affect him in the same way, but what affects me? I know what this leads to this, which is So I got to stop right here. And if I'm frustrated waiting in lines, I will purposely arrange, I'm serious about that. I will purposely arrange my life. If I'm going to a store and need to buy something, I will purposely arrange my life so I don't have to wait in line. Yeah, that's for sure. So, I mean, it's just those are the things. It's a minor thing, but it isn't a minor thing because that the frustration of that can produce lots of other things. So the strategy is: I know that this leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this. So I'm going to right here. My strategy: I'm going to deal with it right here. My wife taught me that. I'm serious in, in, in this avoiding frustration stuff. He just said, well, honey, if that frustrates you, then don't do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's really a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's, but this strategy is that it's an activist and it, it's continual. It's an activist approach to holiness. I know that this leads to this. Okay. It may not be the effect for you guys, but this is what affects me. So I'm going to deal with it right here to avoid this, this, and this. All right, now, we're almost out of time, but let me, uh, you guys online, are you okay, everybody with us? We had some good discussions, and I hope you could hear all that. We heard some of it. Yep, we can hear you fine, but not everybody in the room so much. Okay, oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but did you hear the stuff about the strategy and uh, strategy for holiness? Bill was just using the strategy of waiting in line because he and I have that real problem. <laughs> we, we get frustrated waiting in line, so... We've developed the strategy to do what we can to organize our lives so we don't have to wait in line. Do various yes. things. Yep, we heard that part. That's the main takeaway from the discussion. Okay. <laughs> Let me introduce. Okay, is there any other question? Or everybody with me? Now, verse 15 will go through really the end of the chapter, uh, verse 23. Paul, in a, in, a, in a sense, he keys in on the idea of slavery. But he, he develops this theme now quite extensively, that we're free from enslavement to sin. So look, but he does this by talking a little bit about the law. So I think we can get this done, but then we'll have to pick up the rest of it next week. What, verse 15, what then, or you could translate that, what therefore? Are we to sin because... You are no, we are no longer under law, but under grace. Now, why does he say that? Because he just brought that up at the end of verse 14. That we're no longer under dominion of the old covenant. We're citizens of the new covenant. So that, that becomes important. That would be important for the Jew. But that's also important for you and me. Because as we read and study the Old Testament, the law keeps coming up. I mean, the best example of that is the Ten Commandments. So if I'm no longer under the law, let's just suggest this. For example, the Ten Commandments, but under grace, does that mean I can sin? If I'm no longer in the law, which is a really significant liberating thing, I don't have to go up to Jerusalem Mount for sacrifices. I don't have to follow the kosher food laws. I don't have to follow all the restrictions on how to make my clothing. I, all of those things, I don't have to keep the Sabbath, or I can walk a short distance, six-tenths of a mile to walk any more than that. It's, I'm not, so I'm free. Yes, you are free from that. That's right. So does that mean that I can sin with abandon? No. The new covenant is not antinomian. Isn't that a great word? Aren't you glad I used that? Antinomian, anti-law. Antinomian is used today in theology. Now I can do whatever I want to do. Antinomian means there are no restrictions. Now I'm liberated. And it leads to licentiousness. There's another great word, licentious. Isn't that a great word? I can do whatever I want to do. What was the word you used? Which no. one? Antinomian. Oh. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N. The Greek word for law is, is nomos. So an anti against, so now against law. So I'm an antinomian. I can do whatever I want. 
That's not. No, Paul. No, 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 no. By no means. Strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So he answers the question of verse 15 with another question in verse 16. And if you want to know what that question means, you have to come back next week. Because what Paul does, it's masterful. It's a masterful presentation of why God gave us the law in the first place. Isn't this good stuff, though, Paul? This is so important. If, if I could get this across to every Christian and get it in absolutely drilled into their mind and their heart, I think we would see a massive revival in this country. How do we do that, Jim? <laughs> well, I'm trying to do it by teaching it consistently over in so many different ways. Well, I think it is, it's so crucial that we live this, that we really do live this, that here's who I am, and this now determines how I'm going to live my life. I'd be willing to share that. Yeah, and, and when opportunities provide, come up, providing you, you have the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very short answer, but it is... As we're activists in our pursuit of holiness, we also are activists in our representation of Christ. Because what did Jesus say? You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Salt in ancient world to preserve. You preserving culture for the deterioration. By how you live your life. And light, you expose darkness for what really is. And you do that by saying and living. Doing what Christ wants us to do. I'm going to pray, guys. Father, thank you for all the profound, profound truth of, of 6, 1 through 14. My opinion, Lord, is these are some of the most important verses in the New Testament because they establish, once again, what is our identity? Who are we? And that, therefore, leads to this life of obedience where we become instruments not of unrighteousness but of righteousness. Oh, thank you, Lord, for solving our problem, giving us this new identity. It's not related to sexuality. It's not related to gender. It's not related to color of our skin or our socioeconomic status. It is related to our relationship with you based on faith and the finished work of Christ. You've declared us righteous. That frees us from the power and dominion of death and of sin. We no longer need to sin. We have the power and authority to stop sinning. And that transformation, which is what sanctification is all about, is that process. It begins when we put our faith in Christ and ends when you come back for us and we die. So, Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your understanding. And really, most of all, thank you for your grace. We deserve none of this, but you offer all to us as a free gift. We want to pick up that gift and begin this life of transformation. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the good questions, good interaction we had. Thank you for your faithfulness to each one of us. Help us now to be your salt and your light, to represent you well. Because of your transformation of our lives, we want to share this with others. Help us to be your ambassadors in the name of Christ we pray.